You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Good morning. You're on America's Web Radio. I'm Ron Bachman, and you're listening to Healthcare Insight. Today, I want to focus on the cost of insurance. How do we bring down the cost of insurance so that you and your family can be protected and have the kind of coverage that you need when you go to seek health care? As we've said many times, health insurance is how you finance health care, at least is the major tool that you use to pay for your health care. So let's talk about health care and affordability. I think when it comes to health care, we want the freedom to go and choose our doctors, to get the kind of care we need, to have the information available to make good choices. And affordability of health insurance is the key driver of being able to have that freedom to get the health care you want. So let's talk about affordability. We've described a whole process over the last several weeks of what I've called personalized health insurance. That is getting the health insurance you want for your family that gives you the options, the freedom to go and get the care you want from the providers that you want. You know, there's a great commercial on TV now for auto insurance that says only pay for what you want. And that's really what we need to get to on health care insurance because we don't have or we have a need for one size fits all. Everybody has a different, unique circumstance. If you're young, you have certain needs. If you're older, you have other needs. Typically, as you get older, you'll have more healthcare issues to deal with, whether they're chronic and persistent issues, whether they're just the maladies of life that have created problems for you, or whether you've got some major issues that have occurred from an accident or an illness. Now, when we get to the cost of health care, which helps to drive the cost of health insurance, because the insurance company is going to charge you for what they expect the underlying cost to be. Now, the reality is that we've grown in our health care delivery system so rapidly, and we have so many options available to us with new technologies and new treatments, specialists upon specialists that just drive up the cost of health care. The reality is that doctors and hospitals have no idea what the costs are for the care that they're providing. They don't do it on an hourly basis because there's so much equipment that might need to be used. They have no idea what to charge because the hospital has built this enormous structure for doctors to be able to go and provide services like surgeries, long-term care issues, intensive care issues. All those things are part of a system where nobody really knows when you go into that system what they should charge you. Hospitals use something they call a charge master. And it's basically made up costs. There's no study that hospitals use to determine what a charge master is. It's really an ancient concept that really ought not exist, but there really is no other way to develop 
what hospitals want to charge you, so they make up something. They're not really related to actual procedural costs. I've had relatives that have gone into the hospital through the emergency room and have wound up with eight, ten, fifteen thousand dollar charges. How is that possible? They're not being admitted to the hospital. They're just doing all these services on an outpatient basis. And if they have no insurance, these costs are just jacked way up. So the government needs to reform how hospitals charge because they're not reforming themselves. We don't have any free market because there's a limited number of hospitals that are really available to anybody. So you don't have many choices. You can't say, well, I need to go to the hospital, but... Gee, I can't go in Atlanta today, so I'm going to go up to Chattanooga to go to a hospital, or I'm going to drive down to Macon, or I'm going to fly to New York City. You can't do that when you have an immediate need to be hospitalized. If you're admitted to a hospital and they don't have the right services, you may be transported to another hospital, but you're getting care along the way. You're being stabilized before they transfer you. Now, there's a number of studies out there that actually say exactly what I'm espousing right now, that 90% of the hospitals don't know their cost to provide services. I contend it's probably closer to 100%. Even doctors don't know what the cost of their services are. When you go into a doctor's office, oh, they'll charge you something, but it's based on something called a, a CPT code. They have a designation for what can be reimbursed under each of the CPT codes that define the service that was provided for you. But how do they come up with that? Does the doctor's office do some sort of a a cost analysis? No. What happens is that as an industry, the American Medical Association develops this designation of various services the CPT codes, and then they try to attach a cost to it that's based upon several factors. Doctor's education, his office expenses, and other items that they bring to the table. But the doctor charges that basically for Medicare patients specifically is what it's designed for. But as far as private free market the general public, the non-elderly, they use that schedule which isn't necessarily appropriate for the general public. Many doctors say they could charge less because the Medicare system requires so much reporting, so much follow-up, that if they could simplify that, they would charge less. But under current laws, they can't. There's something called... the best of the market, that doctors can't charge less than Medicare. Now, the public has no input. It's not a free market competition between doctors on what they'll charge. So you don't get a competitive price. I mean, if you had two gas stations next to each other in a corner, they could easily get into a price war. They show what their prices are one day and maybe the other gas station wants to get more business, they'll lower their price. And then the first one will lower the price even more. So 
we don't have that with doctors. They don't look at what other doctors are charging. They just make up what they want to charge. So from the standpoint of cost, it, it really doesn't make any sense that the cost of health care is not subject to any of the normal market forces that any retail product is. The doctors can just make up what they want. Hospitals can just make up what they want. So we've got to figure out a way to change that. And the way to change that, I propose, is to have its impact on insurance minimized. Because what I'd love to do, of course, is change at the federal level the laws that set those prices and tell doctors and hospitals you can't charge less than that because we have the most favored nation status is the way they describe it. You can't charge less if you're going to deliver services to Medicare patients. So the doctors and hospitals thinking that Medicare isn't paying enough even under this structure that they set up with the federal government, they charge the commercial or your group insurance plan, your employer's plan, they charge them more, roughly about 30% more than the Medicare charges. So that's what's called cost shifting. Medicare doesn't pay enough, so they charge more to the commercial or the private insurance marketplace. Where else can that happen? Of course, it's even worse with Medicaid, which is insurance for the poor. Medicaid pays even less than Medicare, and they can because it's a government program, so they're not uh, limited by that most favored nation status clause. So Medicaid pays less, which is why about 30% or more doctors in some areas don't even accept any Medicaid patients. Some don't accept Medicare patients anymore. They'll service the patients they've had for many years as they've aged. So government programs make it very difficult for people to actually get the care that they need when they want it. And it creates the exacerbation of the cost of private health insurance because there's that cost shifting that goes on so the private market pays about 30% more than they really ought to. It makes it very difficult to have lower cost health insurance for working families. That's not fair. That's not right. We need to have some new laws changed to eliminate that kind of a Price fixing, as I refer to it, across the board. We need to free up the marketplace to be competitive so that we can get lower prices. Can you imagine that we could have a sale on certain aspects of healthcare? Maybe it's an x ray, maybe it's a blood test, maybe it's some other service that a doctor could provide, a, a lower cost uh, physical examination. Uh, lower cost um, uh, EKG or stress test, whatever it is, can you imagine there might be some advertising out there that you could actually get a lower cost service from a doctor that's for services that are otherwise covered under your insurance? Wouldn't that be great? And then you can have an app that will identify uh, those discounted services so when they occur, it could pop up and you can decide whether you want to take advantage of that particular uh, savings or not. Maybe you could have Groupons that would actually provide discounts uh, for doctors that are trying to start up a practice or expand their services or for a hospital competing against another hospital. There's all sorts of ways that we could change the cost of services and make it rational 
to a private free market. That's got to be done. We've got to have transparency of cost. And the Trump administration has started down that road. That The president signed an executive order a number of months back that will begin that process of requiring doctors and hospitals to actually post their prices. And maybe we can get some competition. Maybe the media will start to pick up and show what the cost of services are. And maybe we'll have something like a... Um, Oh, an app that might be able to show where to go and how to get there to get the best prices. Sort of a ways of, uh, of, uh, medical services and costs. Where do you go to get the cheapest and the best care? I uh, mean, we'll have more doctors being rated, uh, for that type of service so that patients and the public will know where to go and, and what to do. I think there's a great opportunity here, but it's going to require federal legislation uh, to begin this process. So I want to take a quick break. and We're going to come back and we're going to talk more about the cost impact of health care on the cost of health insurance and how you as an individual out there today, not waiting on legislation, can have an impact on the cost of health insurance. There's great opportunities to do that. So we'll be back in just a minute to give you those kinds of insights. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to Healthcare Insight. Let's continue this discussion on the cost of health insurance and the relationship to what we just talked about, the cost of health care. We just described how the cost of health care makes little to no sense, that there's really no analysis that goes underneath that determination of cost. They're really almost artificially made up and have developed over time so that everybody thinks they are somewhat reasonable, but they're not. So how do you turn that as a consumer? How does a consumer have an impact on making health insurance more affordable when you don't have a direct impact and there's no competition on establishing the prices of health care. Well, I can tell you as an actuary how health insurance premiums are developed so that you, as a consumer, as a patient, as someone who owns a health insurance policy today or are seeking a health insurance policy uh, in the future, how you can take specific actions to lower the cost of your health insurance. There's several ways. Let's talk about the first way. The first way is that you should try to participate with a group of people who have similar risk patterns. In other words, if you could participate with people who are generally young and you're young and they're healthy and you're healthy, you'd have a lower premium. And you'd pay for that lower premium over time. And then as you age, you would pay a little bit more. But you would originally be assigned to a group of people who are generally healthy. So your premiums are going to be less because you're not going to be paying those health care service costs. If you're older, you always have higher premium costs. And you're in the same sort of a risk category. But there are things that older people can do to lower their cost of health insurance dramatically 
because assuming you are not in the uninsurable category, which we'll talk about as an, another segment, you as an older person with chronic conditions, diabetes, asthma, congestive heart failure, all those things, you can dramatically lower the cost of your insurance by taking care of yourself, following your doctor's orders, taking your medication, learning about your illness, learning about your condition so that you're not going to be re-hospitalized. You're maintaining your health status without getting worse and hopefully improving that health status. Because insurance premiums are based upon two factors. If you take a large group of people and you take the cost that we've talked about earlier that the industry sort of sets, you don't get a chance to change that because there's no real competition. You can't really shop around and market for the cost of service. In fact, if you're in a big city and you try to find a lower cost uh, MRI, you'll probably find that most of the, the services that provide um, an MRI are owned by the same hospital system or the same doctor's group. So there's no real competition involved. So you can't affect that. But as an actuary, I can tell you, if you take a group of people, the way you develop an insurance premium, which is what we're trying to explain how to lower that insurance premium cost, is it's the cost of the service, which, again, is being set by the providers, unfairly, but being set by the providers. And the number of times within that group, people use the service. So if you're in a group of people, who can lower the number of times they go to the doctors, number of times they go to the hospital, number of times they take their medication. Taking your medication and going to doctors when you need it in order to stay healthy enough to stabilize your condition. Not talking about eliminating needed medical services, but stopping the overuse of medical services. If you're in that kind of a risk group and you can lower the utilization of the number of times you use services, your insurance premiums will be dramatically lowered. Now, you think, well, I'm just one individual. I can't do it. But that's the whole point of saying if we have a risk stratification and you're in a similar group of people and you're all able to be rewarded and incentivized with lowering your premiums, you'll get that kind of action. Now, within that group, there's another way to, to lower your premiums. And that is as an individual, not as a group, but as an individual, you may have certain ways to get rewards and incentives. If you can get rewards and incentives directly for your own personal actions, you'll be able to both lower the premiums because you'll have some money to offset those premiums. And if you have some cost sharing, deductibles, co-insurance, co-pays, you'll have money to pay for those. So your actual cost of health care uh, can be lowered. What am I talking about? I'm talking about account-based plans, health savings accounts, plans with health reimbursement arrangements, where those plans, whether it's from an insurance company or from your employer, says that if you do certain activities, we will give you extra financial benefits. If you follow your doctor's orders, if you take your medication, if you follow a prenatal uh, pattern of care. There are all sorts of ways to reward and incentivize people. And those dollars can go into your health savings account as a reward or an incentive. If you go on your company um, 5K run, 
if you'll go and get your annual physical exam. We'll give you a bonus. All sorts of things that as an individual you can do to get monies paid to you. And we're saying that across insurance. I've got a device in my car that measures how far I drive, how fast I drive. If I make jackrabbit starts, it'll indicate that. But if I drive in a responsible way, I will get rewards and incentives. Well, why can't we do that in health insurance? Well, we have a whole different set of laws. We have a whole different set of insurance companies that aren't as creative and inventive as some of the property casualty or auto insurance companies. There seems to be a lot more competition over on that side of insurance, the property and casualty side, than there is on the health insurance side. Why is that? Because so much is dominated by a few health insurance companies. We need more competition in general. But there's no reason why your company, especially if you're working for an employer, can't provide those kinds of rewards and incentives. So you have the two ways. You have a group way of lowering your premiums. If you're participating with people and you're working with people to lower the utilization of your services, you'll get lower insurance premiums. Also, as an individual, you can do things that you will be rewarded and incentivized for doing as an individual. Now, what about people who have really serious conditions? Those are the people that I would identify as being uninsurable. They have existing cancer. Um, they have existing uh, brain traumas. They have issues that are catastrophic. They are what, what would typically be called uninsurable. Well, how do we lower the premiums for those folks? Or do we just ignore them? Because in the past, that's what we did. In the past, we just ignored those people, kind of pushed them aside in what used to be called a high-risk pool. And we kind of shunned them. So they'd go over there, be covered by that minimal policy with high costs, and you know it'll pay for everything except what you really need to get paid for. We don't want that. We want them to have the best of care because they are the people in most need. So what can we do with those? We can create something that's new. It may look a little bit like something of the past, but it is totally new. It is what I call an impaired health support set of plans. That is, people who have a cancer ought to have choices and options for those cancer treatments. Where do they go? Do they go to MD Anderson in Houston, Texas? Do they go to Cancer Treatment Centers of America? Or do they go to some other cancer facility that's well-recognized and high reputation in their local community or in a regional community? If they get the right kind of care, they can become one of the survivors. If they get the right kind of follow-up treatment, they can become one of the long-term survivors. If they get the right kind of test, they might be able to make the kind of choices that they want. And I'll give a personal example. I have a family member who had breast cancer. And that person had a sample of that cancer sent off to a lab. And the results came back, given the family history, medical history of that family member. All that was put together with the analysis of the breast cancer tissue 
And they came back with an estimate of if you go through chemotherapy or radiation therapy, here is your five-year mortality rate improvement for doing these different treatments. Well, you know, going through chemotherapy or radiation therapy ain't a lot of fun. And it's got its own problems and issues. So you don't want to do it if you don't have to. But most people wind up with that's not an option. Or they don't know what their options are. Or they don't know what the ultimate impact might be, chemotherapy and radiation therapy. So they just do what their doctor tells them. But they don't have a much of a voice. They're just scared to death about the C word. Well, in my family member's case, it came back and the analysis was that going through chemotherapy or radiation therapy after the um, mastectomy and the surgery was not going to have that big of an impact on their five-year mortality rate or on their 10-year mortality rate. It was about the same. So that family member decided I'm not going to have chemotherapy or radiation therapy. I'm going to wait, and I'm going to see what happens with um, the removal of the cancer and how I feel as I go forward, and I'll continue my testing. I'll continue monitoring, and it's been 10 years for that family member, and they've not had any problems at all. But the point is that they made the choice. They made the choice. It wasn't the lower costs. It wasn't to lower the utilization of those services, although that is what happened. It was somebody who was informed and concerned about their own health, that they were able to make the right decision to not only lower the mortality rate that was expected going forward, but it also lowered the cost. So she was, if she was in a risk pool of people who had the same interest, the same interest in learning and educating themselves and making decisions as a consumer, as a real patient, then her premiums were going to be lower. And they were lower because of that. And she was able to do follow-up treatments, which she gets rewards and incentives for. So all that works if you understand health insurance, which many people don't understand it and many people don't want to. But you have a right to be in a group of people who do. So we're at the end of this segment. Let's take another quick commercial break, and we'll be right back and continue to talk about how to make health insurance more affordable for you and your family. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome back. Let's continue the discussion about how you and your family can lower the cost of health insurance and still give you access to all the health care that you need. The real issue is health insurance is made up of three parts, or at least it should in all cases. The financing of health care has these three parts, health insurance premiums, Savings accounts, whether taxable or non-taxable accounts, and incentives and rewards. And the way you as an individual, as a member of a family, your family members can have an impact on this as well as you because what you want to do is get the health insurance you need 
for your sake, for your purposes. And you can get lower premiums on that first item if you select only what you want, not what some government bureaucrat wants. The second item is if you select an account-based plan, specifically a health savings account and a health reimbursement arrangement. And if you have some sort of a matching from your employer for a FSA, a flexible spending account, that's fine too. But usually rewards and incentives, which will be the third item I want to talk about, are related to account-based plans with health savings accounts and health reimbursement arrangements. So if you have one of those plans, you can put money into those accounts, which are tax-advantaged for the health savings accounts. Now, your employer only can put money into or recognize an accumulation of a health reimbursement arrangement. You as an individual can't. So that's a little bit more limiting, but still, your employer can put extra money beyond the health insurance into a health reimbursement arrangement. But let's focus on the health savings accounts for a moment because there, the employer can put money into it, you can put money into it, and even outside third parties can put money into it. What about those dollars? Well, they're tax-advantaged. When you put money into an account, you get a tax deduction for that. Not only that, it accumulates tax-free. So if it's in a, if you have a lot of money, you might have some of it put in the stocks. There's nothing that should stop you from doing that. Most people put into a bank account, which doesn't pay these days much interest, but whatever you're getting on it, whether it's interest or accumulation from a stock account, that increase is not taxable either. So that's not taxable income to you. It just accumulates without any tax consequences. And if you take it out for medical purposes, it's not taxed either. So it's a triple tax advantage for people. So it's a great way to lower your cost of health care, whether it's health care that's covered under your insurance policy or not, whether it's part of your insurance policy, but it's not being paid because you're still in the deductible period, or whether there's some medical service that your plan does not cover. So you lowered your premiums by selecting a more appropriate plan for you is item number one that we just mentioned, but you're accumulating more dollars on a tax advantage basis to make up for anything that that insurance policy might not cover that you find later on that you need to have covered. Now let's talk about the third area, rewards and incentives. Especially if you have an account-based plan with a health savings account, your employer should do rewards and incentives. Or if you bought it directly from an insurance company, it should have rewards and incentives. Because if you're doing the right things, there should be lower insurance premiums. So you're following doctor's orders, you're taking your medication, you're changing your lifestyle, whatever it is, there should be a reward and incentive because you're creating savings for that employer or that insurance company, and they should share some of that savings back to you for doing the right things. It's a reinforcing mechanism as well. It says you did the right things, you followed your doctor's order, you took your medication, so here's some extra money back to reinforce that going forward. Again, making a comparison to auto insurance these days, and that mechanism that I have attached to my car, 
that sends messages back to my auto insurance company. If I drive appropriately, I stay within the speed limit. I don't jackrabbit start my car. I don't drive an unusual number of miles. They'll give me a reward incentive. Well, that reinforces that I should be a better driver. If I don't have access because I've been a careful defensive driver, I avoid accidents that might otherwise have occurred if I hadn't been paying attention. They give me rewards and incentives. Why can't we bring that to healthcare? Well, there's no reason, except we don't have enough competition in the marketplace. But the fact that we have some of that, you should take advantage of. And the more people take advantage of that and do the right things, the more products like that we will get. So what you want to do is minimize the amount of coverage that you need so you minimize your insurance premium. You maximize the savings through a tax-advantaged account if you can. And you maximize the opportunities to get rewards and incentives for actions that are just going to better your health anyway. So those are the things that you really should be doing. Now let's talk about insurance companies. Under this system, we've talked about personalized health insurance, where companies are going to give the kinds of products that I've talked about, give the kinds of services. In the past weeks, I've called them participating insurers. Well, let's define now what a participating insurer would be in a new system that's much more consumer-oriented, consumer-driven, and patient-centric. A participating insurer would be a licensed health insurance company that voluntarily chooses to join a network of insurers working in compliance with the personalized health insurance agreements. Now, that sounds like a lot of words. Let's see if we can unpack that a little bit. Because in a truly voluntary system, individuals, employers, and insurers are not compelled to get or provide health insurance. You've got to give people options, employers options, insurance companies options. Individuals, for example, are free to be uninsured, but there will be tax consequences for that choice, and I'll talk about that later. Likewise, insurers are not required to sign up with the entity that we've called in the past the Health Review Authority. That's an equalizing force that says if I get rejected from an insurance company, they'll look at it and see if that was an appropriate rejection or not. And if it's not, I get something called a Certificate of Guaranteed Coverage. I can go back and I can get the coverage guaranteed covering pre-existing conditions. Health Review Authority. We've given a lot of time and attention to that in the past, but that's basically what it is. It equalizes the power between the individual applying for insurance or the small group applying for insurance and the insurance company. So insurers are not required to sign up with the Health Review Authority and get the benefits of that and have access to the Impaired Health Support Plan because the real key is that if you sign up with the Health Review Authority and accept their decisions, then many of the customers that you would otherwise have can be put into the Impaired Health Support Plan, and that removes them from that risk pool, which allows the insurance companies to have lower premiums. So insurers choosing not to participate will fail to have the significant market advantages of personalized health insurance. That's how we create a more competitive market. 
even before we're able to bring in new insurance companies, we have the existing insurance companies with a competitive nature to go against each other. So if they were to join this personalized health insurance plan, they would actually be able to lower the cost to their existing clients and the clients they want because anybody with a bad health, a high risk, would be put into impaired health support plans, which are actually going to have the best plans available to help people, but they will be subsidized. So here are two main reasons why insurers will voluntarily participate in the personalized health insurance program that would accept decisions of the Health Review Authority and recognize the certificate of guaranteed coverage. First, participating insurers can apply the Health Review Authority for individuals or small group employees and their family members who are determined to have serious medical concerns or be uninsurable. That is, these persons are at risk for high-cost health conditions. If accepted into the impaired health support group, the insurers are then relieved of any potential high costs from those lives. So what a great benefit to an insurance company that even in the small group marketplace, they can segment out individuals and put them into this impaired health support plan. And we've talked about it before, but I'll throw the numbers out here again, that the number of uninsurables are only about 2 or 3% of the population, but they represent about 20% of the costs. So if we're able to pull 20% of the costs out of the existing health insurance system, we will lower the health insurance premiums by that much, let alone lowering it again from the other items I mentioned in our earlier segments today of lowering utilization and getting rewards and incentives for those who remain insurable. Second, participating insurers can have a second bite at the apple at the first renewal of a small group. Now, this is critical, and it's totally different. It's a big idea here that insurance companies offering coverage to small group plans, that is, employers basically under 50 lives, that at the first renewal of the plan, if something has happened during that first year that causes somebody to be basically uninsurable. Maybe they had an accident. Maybe they had an illness befall them. Maybe some condition developed over the year that made them uninsurable. The plan members who experience that kind of significant deterioration in health can apply for coverage in the impaired health support coverage plans. So again, we get to pull out more people. And again, we're still only talking about a total of 2 or 3% of the population, not an additional 2 or 3%, but a total of 2 or 3% of the population that would be truly uninsurable, even taking these additional lives. But that's a great benefit to a health insurance company. And once an individual or plan member in that small group is accepted into the impaired health support coverage, the participating insurers will not have any further financial responsibility for the claims on that individual. They will be put into a pool and that pool will be subsidized. They will pay a little bit of a premium, more like standard premiums that everybody else pays, even though they're high risk, but they will have subsidies from state and or federal government. By segmenting risks out that we've been talking about, this segmentation is so important, and nobody else has proposed a system of segmenting risks like we're talking about. 
but this segmentation of risk will lower the premiums for the remaining individuals and small groups by at least 15 to 20%. And if we do that and subsidize the people that are uninsurable, we'll keep their premiums low as well. But we'll have a viable market, a robust market, that's really a free market, voluntary participation, and it is truly the way to go. Let's take a break and we'll come back for our final segment in just a minute. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome back for our final segment on Healthcare Insight. And we're providing insight into how to create affordable health insurance for you and your family. There are things that you can do, we've described and talked about, with the existing market as it is. We've also talked about how the market could change if we had new legislation, new regulation, and if we had people like you doing the right things, choosing the right products that can be reinforced and they would become a bigger, bigger part of the marketplace. If you're buying health insurance as an individual, find one that is a health savings account plan with rewards and incentives. That's the best way to show the market, to show the insurance companies that these are the products that people want and they want to have rewards and incentives for them doing the right thing. So if you're taking care of yourself, you're changing your diet, your exercise, you're following your doctor's orders, if you're going to have a baby, you're following prenatal care so that that baby is born healthy, that's the type of risk group that you want to be in. You can have lower premiums and you can get rewards and incentives back that lower your overall costs even more. So we've been talking about a couple of new ideas, new buzzwords that maybe you haven't heard of before. Unless you've been listening to our prior programs, which we've been in great detail about some of these ideas. Health Review Authority. I've described that basically as a leveling entity, a private public partnership that gives consumers an avenue to counter random rejections of coverage from an insurance company, that they'll review it and they'll say, no, you really shouldn't have been rejected. You're not uninsurable. They should have offered you a product that's acceptable. We'll give you a certificate of guaranteed coverage. That's the real power. Consumerism power is a certificate of guaranteed coverage. It would give you coverage for pre-existing conditions. So we're now talking about why would any insurance company participate in this if they're not forced to. And we're not forcing anybody to participate. If the insurance company doesn't want to, they don't have to. But they're going to miss out on great market advantages. So I think they will want to. But instead of forcing them, we'll give them the option. So let's talk about sort of a question and answer period as we wrap up this last session. And I'll start with that question we sort of just answered, but let me be a little bit more clear. Is the insurer participation in the impaired health support coverage voluntary? The answer is yes. Nothing, what I've proposed, nothing requires insurers to contract with the Health Review Authority to participate in the impaired health support coverages. Access to the impaired health support coverage is limited to those insurers contracting with the Health Review Authority for reviewing both eligible group members and individual applications. 
So they may not like somebody looking at their decision-making, but the benefit is if they do, those individuals in the group plan, which is the real marketplace that most insurers really want, they don't sometimes care that much about individual policies. As a consumer, you do. If you're between jobs or you want to have your own portable coverage, individual policy is the way to go. But insurance companies, this idea of being able to pull people out of a group plan is totally new. That's the big idea. And then to do it second by the apple at the renewal is even bigger. So I think it'll be a great attractor for insurance companies to want to participate and do what needs to get done for individual policies as well as small groups. So here's another question. What types of insurers are eligible to provide coverage in the impaired health support uh, type plans? Well, the answer there is any participating insurer authorized to transact accident and sickness insurance business in a state. So you have to be approved in a state. Any nonprofit medical service corporation, many of these are HSAs. Any nonprofit hospital service corporation, and any health care plan and any health maintenance organization authorized to transact business in the state. This is sort of a classic definition so that we've covered all sorts of potential organizations and business structures that could be providing health insurance. Next question I want to talk about is what are the insurer's obligations as participants in the impaired health support coverage? Well, their obligations are that the insurers must agree to participate for both fully insured small group members and individual applicants. That's a big difference. Because the old structure of high-risk pools was something that most insurance companies didn't want to participate in, but the only way they could avoid many of those entanglements was to just stop offering individual health insurance policies. There's no law that requires an insurer to offer both individual and group plans. But under this structure, structure, they're incentivized, so we'll actually create more competition for individual policies in this approach as another side benefit. Participating insurers must accept the determinations by the Health Review Authority of uninsurable and insurable decisions for small group members and individuals. Now, not everybody is going to go through the Health Review Authority. It's only that remnant of what gets rejected by an insurance company where people think they might have been treated unfairly. Or in a small group plan, if an insurer tries to write that plan and recognizes somebody who's uninsurable, they'll send it to the Health Review Authority for that determination. And then if they are uninsurable, they can be pulled out of the group plan and the existing remaining group plan would then have much lower premiums. And that individual who got pulled out will get the best care possible in the impaired health support plan structure. So everybody wins in this process. Well, how will the impaired health support coverage affect insurers' underwriting? In other words, if they're doing risk selection already, And the data shows that when they do risk selection, they'll accept 88, 89% of any applicants that are submitted. And if the information is complete, um, people get the policy they want at a fair premium. Sometimes, obviously, 
everybody thinks health insurance premiums are too high, but there'll be an, a mutually agreed upon contract. That's the key here. So an insurer's participation in the personalized health insurance reform program, will that change, impose, or impinge on an insurer's ability to set or use individual or group underwriting standards as defined by each insurer? Those we're not setting up a standard underwriting practice. So how will that work? Will insurers still be allowed to cherry pick to accept only the healthiest employees that would get their premiums down low that way and not have to participate in this whole other process to get lower premiums? Well, that might work in the short run for some, but it means that they won't be able to get the same kind of a market share that everybody else will get by offering up to everybody, including all lives, because if there is an uninsurable individual, they can be pulled out, and that's a better way rather than just rejecting everybody. So what's going to happen? Over time, the insurer is likely to voluntarily adjust its risk selection process to minimize the required acceptance of those coming to them with certificates of guaranteed coverage. Now, you don't want to re- reject people and then get other lives that might be a little bit worse than what you originally underwrote and then coming back with certificates of guaranteed coverage. I know that's a little bit complicated, but the process is that insurers will voluntarily participate in these programs and they'll voluntarily adjust the risk selection process because they'll be able to segment out the lives that are truly uninsurable, which lowers their overall cost. So they won't have to reject as many lives as they might have in the past anyway. So why would an insurer voluntarily participate with a health review authority? Well, we've said it sort of several ways, but let me say it again. Insurers participating with the health review authority will be able to offer individual and fully insured employer-sponsored small group plans that have significantly lower premiums, probably lower by 15 to 20%. That's a lot lower than those who might want to just cherry pick, which wouldn't lower their premiums by that much, and they would have a much narrower market than a company offering to everybody and then be able to segment out the high risk. So insurers will gain market share by covering more individual lives after segmenting risk into the impaired health support plan. So they're going to gain market share. Any insurer not participating will be at a significant disadvantage with higher-priced, fully-insured small group plans and expensive individual policies. And if they try to cherry-pick, they're just going to have a very small market share. makes it very difficult for them to cover their costs, to be able to get the kind of discounts from providers and hospitals that they would otherwise want. It'd be a very limited uh, regional type of uh, coverage, and it's not going to be able to compete at all with those who voluntarily uh, participate with the um, Health Review Authority. So can insurers terminate once they join? They could try it out. If they don't like it, can they terminate after joining in with the health review authority and accepting uh, that some people can get segmented out under the impaired health support coverage? Well, the answer is yes, they can terminate. Insurers can terminate the agreement with the health review authority, but they need to give some advance notice. And my suggestion is about a 180-day notification so that there can be an easy transition. The insurer will retain coverage for those lives 
covered while under contract to the impaired health support coverage. So they'll, they'll retain uh, coverage for those individuals that they've already accepted under the certificate of guaranteed coverage. And the health review authority can immediately suspend or terminate the agreement with any insurer if the insurer fails to meet the participation standards. In other words, they stop to accepting a certificate of guaranteed coverage or other conditions that uh, a fee that they might have to pay in order to help finance the uh, health review authority or any structure that might be necessary uh, to cover the costs of both the uh, impaired health support uh, plans and the um, health review authority. So this creates a new market. Um, I know some of the details here may be a little bit difficult to follow uh, with a, a verbal discussion, but I hope you get the sense that there's real options, there's real opportunity here for people to get the kind of coverage they want at a lower premium, and that's been the focus of our whole presentation today. How do we lower the cost of health insurance so that we can get the health care that we want? We talked about there are some aspects that are more difficult than others. It's harder to try to get a better price on a health care service because that's not so much under our control. That's the arbitrary uh, establishment of prices by doctors and hospitals and basically price fixing by the federal government and the American Medical Association. So we can change utilization. We can participate in rewards and incentives. We can purchase um, health plans with health savings accounts. We can work with our employer to establish programs where we should be provided rewards and incentives. Uh, and we can work with insurance companies along the same line. So a lot is under your control with the way you purchase, the way you utilize health insurance. But I'll wrap up with one final statement that we'll try to get into next week. One of the most important things is you to be educated and learn about health insurance so that you won't have some of these health insurance costs. So please, open up your minds, learn about health insurance. And if you're a family member, don't rely just on the spouse to be the expert. You need to learn more about your own health. It'll pay big dividends down the road for you as well. Well, I hope this is helpful to you this week. We'll see you next week. This is Ron Bachman on America's Web Radio, signing off. Until next week. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening.